I cried on an airplane recently, and not once, but several times. And I don't cry easily. I'm not sure why. I think it's something that comes along with being a lifelong entrepreneur. You learn to compartmentalize your feelings, especially when you're worried. You need to show your family, employees, and bankers, and all who depend on you that things are always good. But here's where it gets embarrassing. My tears were for his television show. It was the Friends reunion. The first time in 17 years that the cast of this acclaimed TV show came together and all the emotions they felt visiting their set for the first time in so many years. I liked the show when it came out, but I wasn't obsessed with it. So I asked myself, why the tears? And as one of the creators said about Friends when they were pitching the idea to the networks, well, Friends is about the time in your life when your friends are your family. And that reunion did bring me back to a time in my life when my friends were my family. I'd moved up from Montreal to Toronto. I lived platonically with two girls and one of my best friends moved into the basement. It also took me back to my first agency, Communique, and how everyone there was under 30. We had no experience to draw upon, but we managed to create award-winning content, grew to over 100 people, and most of the people there went on to do amazing things with their careers. Some even joined me at my second agency, Capital C. I wonder what it would be like to go back in time and to see the slide projectors in the office and everything that mattered so much to me back then. Friends also reminded me of a simpler time, and that might be just the generosity of my memory. Back then, it seemed like politicians wanted to build and not divide, and they answered questions. Sure, we had problems and scars, but first and foremost, we were humans. We were all working to build a better country and a better life. Friends also reminded me of my age. I could see how the cast had aged over the years, and so have I. I'm happy where I'm right now with my family, my friends, and my health, and my career. But I know there's not another communique or capital C in me. And that's not easy to say for an entrepreneur, but at the same time, it's okay. And my biggest fear when I think of my age is one day losing the faculty of my brain. And my biggest wish is that I die still trying. If I can't be relevant, then hopefully I have the skills to interview people that are. And I imagine that many who listen will find all of this fluff, but I know some of you will see it as I did, as a show that was a reflection of life and at a time when friends were family, when time was endless, and we were all in it together. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Susan Kane. She's a Harvard-educated lawyer, she's seasoned as a negotiator, but she jumped off that noisy train to write a bestseller book called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Now I was in my early 30s and suddenly I had no career, no love, no place to live. And immediately I fell into a relationship with a handsome musician who liked to compose lyrics by day and stand around a piano with friends singing at night. My feelings for him developed into this crazy obsession until one day a friend said to me, you are this hooked because he represents something you're longing for. What are you longing for? She struck a powerful and lasting emotional chord that resonated across society and media and on stage at a TED conference. And this year, Susan Kane has brought out her new book. Well, she didn't just bring it out. It stormed out, became number one on its debut. It's called Bittersweet. How Sorry and Longing Make Us Whole. Susan Kane, best-selling author, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. It's wonderful to be here with you. How does that feel to have a book debut as number one? I mean, that just says that the world has an insatiable appetite for some of the insights that you offer. It was it was actually shocking. I you know, I never 
really imagined that that was going to happen. You kind of hope that you'll make the bestseller list, but it literally never occurred to me um, that it would debut at number one. And when my publisher called to tell me, I just sort of listened in disbelief. Um, and then my husband and I drank a lot of Baileys, which which if you know me from uh, from my book, Quiet, you know that that is my go-to drink of choice. So we sat on my office sofa clinking glasses. So a lot of what you do, your books, your insights, your TED Talks, the courses you teach are all based on human insights, how we think how we feel and how we behave. And before we get into some of the observations in those books, I'm just curious, where did that come from in terms of being baked into your DNA that you were more fascinated about what was happening around you than just simply being the person trying to steal the stage? I really do believe that we are who we are from the time from the time we arrive on the earth. And so I don't know, you know, I'm the daughter of a rabbi who is also like both spiritually and also very psychologically inclined. I don't know if I just said daughter, but I'm the granddaughter of that rabbi and always really related to his way of looking at the world. You know, and I became a corporate lawyer for the first 10 years of my career, mostly because I was trying to be practical and be able to support myself. But even during all those years that I was practicing corporate law, I spent the whole time serving on every law firm committee that had to do with mentorship and um, gender issues and uh, gosh, what else? Just everything that had to do with sort of the human side of law. You're the youngest of three children. And, you know, when you read people like Alfred Adler and Austrian psychiatrist and, you know, and a contemporary of Freud and Young, he was the first to suggest that, you know, it's not just how you're born, it's how you ladder within the family. And the firstborn might be the louder one and the lastborn more the introverted. Do you feel that any of that factored into where you were in your family and your siblings? In terms of introversion, not so much. I, I just come from a very introverted family. I I would say every single member of my family is introverted, both my parents, my two siblings, um, my grandfather, who I just told you about, all introverts. But I am the youngest child, and I do think that my birth order may have influenced my sense of just following more my own path in general, like just in terms of my thought processes. And Let's talk about follow your own path. Harvard educated, you're a lawyer involved in negotiations. As you said, you're on every committee that's to deal with mentorship and well-being, but you decide to jump off that path and become a writer. What was the motivation for doing that? You could say it's sort of a push and a pull in a way. I mean, the, the deep motivation is that I had wanted to be a writer since I was four years old, literally. And I had completely like forgotten about that whole dream. The whole time I was practicing law, I just forgot about it. But what happened is I, at the end of seven years at my corporate law firm, I found out that I wasn't going to be making partner. And at the time it felt like a catastrophe and I felt like every, you know, all, everything I had been working on for seven years, 24 seven was all for nothing. But what ended up happening was I, left the office two hours later. I just asked for a leave of absence and left, knowing I probably wasn't ever coming back. And I found myself that very evening starting to write again. And it was the first time I had done that in about 10 years. And about a week after that, I signed up for a class in creative nonfiction writing at NYU. And I sat in that class on the very first day and felt such a profound sense at having arrived at what I was supposed to be doing. Never thought I'd be able to make a living at it, but I did know that I was going to organize the rest of my life around it. So I, I just kind of started 
looking for freelance ways to support myself so that I could feed my writing hobby. And when you're at the law firm, did you think you were judged unfairly because you're the one signing up for committees versus maybe other lawyers chasing billable hours? No, because I was also working insane billable hours. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was working a lot of hours, um, but I was just doing that other stuff on the side because I couldn't help myself. And also, I, I would say the firm that I was at... Um, I really loved that firm. I loved the culture of it. And and they really were interested in, you know, what they called the more collegial values. So I, I I felt that serving on those committees was somewhere between neutral to positive. And when you went home that night taking your leave of absence and said, I wrote for the first time, do you remember what you wrote? <laughs> yes, it's it's actually kind of funny and embarrassing. Um I had just seen the movie Legally Blonde. And I wrote a review of the movie, but not just a review. I wrote like a, the, the, the protagonist in that movie had gone to the same law school that I went to. So I, went, I wrote some whole like analysis of what the movie got right and wrong about women in law. I have no idea where that essay is. I was hoping you could find it. I would love to tag it to the show notes because I think the, uh, by the way you uh, laughed about it, it sounds like it was something that, as you said, truly uh, a change in path. And the answer came to me with a sudden clarity. It was like, of course, he was the writing life that I had longed for since I was four years old. And just like that, the obsession fell away and I started writing for real. I have come to believe that really what we are craving at bottom is that state of longing, that joy that's laced with sorrow, which is often triggered when we experience something so exquisite that it seems to come to us from some other world except it only lasts a moment, and we really want to live there for good. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We'll soon learn about how Susan Kay not only overcame her insecurities about speaking live, she also delivered one of the most popular TED Talks in the world by focusing on authenticity, not showmanship. Susan, for seven years, you're making a living trying to feed your writing habit, but you write quiet, the power of introverts. Seven years is a long time. There must have been times where you just wanted to give up and start something new. No, I never wanted to give up. I was completely focused on it with, with a very deep intensity, and I just wanted to get it right. I also had two children during that time, so, you know, that, that obviously slowed things down, but... I turned in a draft after the first two years or so, and my editor read the draft and said to me, you really need to start over from scratch, and you should take as much time as you need to do that. You may have thought that I would have left her office crestfallen, but I kind of left skipping because I felt like I knew I needed all that time. Um, I had no idea how to write a book. I had never published a word in my life, and I just felt like I needed time to figure it out and get it right. So I was just so thrilled that the publishing house was letting me do that as opposed to like forcing it out the door, which is which is what does sometimes happen. And when you're embarking on a career like this, where the reward is this is what you want to do, the risk is I'm not making the income I might have made as a, a lawyer. We've got two children. How important is it for you to make sure that your partner is aligned in this so that this is your your dream together versus just maybe someone feeling that that's just your dream, but in doing so, you're sacrificing others. Oh my gosh. I mean, I have to say I have been so incredibly lucky 
in my partner in that way, my my now husband, Ken. He's really beyond, beyond, beyond supportive and has been from the very day that practically the very day that we met. I mean, the literally on our second date, I brought with me some poems because before I was writing quiet, like right after I left the law firm, I was I was doing a lot of different writing um, before I got to quiet. And one of the first things I wrote was a memoir in sonnet form. And I brought some of those poems to my second, to our second date and showed or, or handed the poems to Ken. And, and he emailed me later that night. You could actually show the email as part of the show notes. You kind of won't believe it when you see it. Like just this gigantic exclamation you know, that I still have in my, framed in my office of like, drop everything, write woman, write. Um, and, and he really has been that way. Ever since, and how did the, your grandfather, who's a rabbi, what did he think of you moving from law and all the prestige that comes with that to putting pen to paper? Oh my gosh, I wish he could have seen it. He was not alive. He, he died at the age of ninety-four, um, and I didn't start writing till I was in my thirties. So he never lived to see it. I think he would have loved it. So I want to talk about quiet. I mean, you go across the country, and you certainly interview some of the top peacocks or extroverts out there. I mean, Tony Robbins, Rick Warren's Saddleback Church. When I read your book, it wasn't you were anti them, but you were just making this compelling case that wake up world, just because somebody's fluffing their feathers, there's a lot that happens in this society because of introverts. Where did that book go from being what I would say just a great insight to being almost a manifesto for society. I think it just touched a nerve for so many people and across so many different walks of life, you know, so it was it was managers, it was CEOs, it was school teachers, it was parents, it was gardeners, it was like your grocery store clerk. It was like every person in every walk of life no matter what age they were was aware of this dynamic and if they were introverted and, and a third to a half of us are, so that's one out of every two or three people, if they were introverted, they they had been walking around for their entire lives feeling that the way they preferred to spend their time and the way they preferred to interact with people, you know, that none of that was quite right. And often that was not quite articulated. It was just kind of like a a feeling you carry around with you. So I think there was just a great big explosion when there was suddenly a language for talking about it. And did you turn it into a TED Talk in Long Beach? From what I understand, like over 30 million people have listened now. It's a top 100 of all time, almost a million likes. I mean, those are extraordinary numbers. When I was nine years old, I went off to summer camp for the first time, and my mother packed me a suitcase full of books which to me seemed like a perfectly natural thing to do, because in my family, reading was the primary group activity. And this might sound antisocial to you, but for us, it was really just a different way of being social. I had a vision of 10 girls sitting in a cabin, cozily reading books in their matching nightgowns. <laughs> Camp was more like a keg party without any alcohol. And on the very first day, our counselor gathered us all together, and she taught us a cheer that she said we would be doing every day for the rest of the summer to instill camp spirit. R-O-W-D-I-E, that's the way we spell rowdy, rowdy, rowdy. Let's get rowdy. <gasps> so I couldn't figure out for the life of me why we were supposed to be so rowdy, or why we had to spell this word incorrectly. <laughs> 
first of all, what was it like for you to prepare for that talk, knowing that this introvert that could very quietly write a book was suddenly now having to go out on stage and talk about it? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, these days, ironically, you know, I, I have a career as a public speaker. So being on the stage is just, you know, you could say another day to me. But back then, I had a life standing. It wasn't just that I was introverted, because many introverts are quite comfortable on stage and great on stage. Um, but I had a lifelong phobia of public speaking that I had managed to grit my teeth through during all those years I was a lawyer. But it was always hard for me. <laughs> and leading up to the TED Talk, I, I was fl flat out terrified. And many people are about giving a TED Talk. It was just on a whole other level for me. So I actually worked with this amazing coach named Jim Fife for a week beforehand, like from morning till night. Jim said this brilliant thing to me. So I, I said to him, you know, I'm really comfortable chatting with people. I really love to talk with people. <laughs> what I'm not comfortable with is being like a show person up on stage. And he said, okay, fine, let's take your talk and we're going to sit on the sofa and we're just going to chat your talk, you know, just like tell me your talk as we're as we're sitting here on this sofa. And we worked on the talk that way for like the first two days of our work together. And that really opened me up to finding my own kind of stage presence, you know, which isn't about showmanship. It's about hopefully being like really present and having something to share and having a conversation with the audience. The chord that carries through it really is authentic. It's honest. That's a beautiful thing because so many people do come out so polished. In that talk in your book, you urge the audience to society to cultivate space for the indispensable introverts among us. Are humans ready to make that space? Yeah, because I don't think extroverts are taking the space out of a desire to keep others out. I think it's more that extroverts have an, a natural exuberance and irrepressibility that is so valued in this culture that we don't see the value of other ways of being as well. But once we start to see those values, I think everyone's quite happy to make space for them. The question is, how do you keep that going? Um, so I, I've been really cheered to see it, you know, just the over the last 10 years, there's just so much discussion now about introversion and extroversion and about how to rethink schools and companies. Um, I think we still have a long way to go, but I, I have found people to be incredibly receptive to these ideas. One of the most popular ads of all time is Steve Jobs and Here's to the Crazy Ones, where he celebrates the ones that change the world. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes. And I think you two are just kindred spirits in terms of this insight on that it, it, sometimes it's not collaboration, but just somebody going away to a quiet space where they feel most comfortable that brings out some of the most the world's most cherished thinking. I mean, I, I told you about my grandfather, um, where people would come and listen to his sermons from like all over the place. It was standing room only. And, and he would give these sermons, you know, in his incredibly gentle, soft-spoken tones, and people just wanted to hear what he had to say. And then, you know, on the other side of my family, I had my father, who was a really great physician who you would go to if you couldn't figure out what the diagnosis was, he might be able to figure it out for you. And the reason was, and it was so crystal clear to me, he would 
you know, he'd worked really hard all day um, and he would come home, pour over medical textbooks, you know, and, and he would go to the medical conventions and taper, sit in the front row and tape record everything and listen to the tape recordings over and over again until he had learned it all. And it was like, it was so clear to me that this ability, this willingness to be in solitude, you know, really focus, really think deeply, that that yielded all kinds of dividends. So then like, as I started to grow up and looked around and realized that the culture wasn't valuing these things that were so obviously valuable, it was my own life experiences that got me there. And I'm guessing with that Steve Jobs ad that there was some kind of similar pathway there. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. When we come back, it's April 2022. Susan Cain releases a new book. It hits the top of the charts on its release. It's called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Makes Us Whole. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. We know that we live in a deeply flawed world, and we have this stubborn conviction that we come from a perfect and beautiful one that remains forever out of reach. And maybe that sounds depressing to you, but this state of mind, this longing, is actually the deep source of all our moonshots and our love. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest is best-selling author, Susan Cain. Susan, you're a speaker, you do training, you do coaching. You could have just stayed with quiet and turn that into an empire with all the many businesses that came off of that insight. But you you chose to go into a new territory. And yet again, it's one really deeply rooted in the heart. And that's all about the sense that happiness is not the only game in town. But take us back to where that insight came from and, and how it manifested into a book. The insight came, well, it came from so many places, but one place it came is is from music. Um, I have been listening all my life, well, to music of all kinds, but then especially to sad music and wondering all my life how it could be that music that was ostensibly yearning and minor key and sad, why it would be that that would be, that music would give rise to such states of love and uplift and connection. I came to investigate what I call the bittersweet tradition which you find in every culture all across the centuries of religions and wisdom traditions and and art and, and our literary heritage, all of it pointing in this one direction that the understanding that this life is a life of joy, but also of sorrow, that they go together, that light and dark are forever paired, um, that nothing is permanent, that with those insights comes it's, they're a kind of gateway to creativity and connection and transcendence. And yet we're living in a culture that's telling us, don't talk about that. You know, don't look, don't look at all that. You just want to be cheerful. That's the way, that's the path to success. And 
it's a spiritually impoverished way of being. So I read all the reviews to your book, not all of them, but I read many of them. And they were just so, I love the fact that you struck such an emotional chord with Bittersweet with so many people. Adam Grant, for example, said, this is the rare book that doesn't just open your eyes. It touches your heart and it sings to your soul. Susan Cain gave us a voice to introverts, and now she masterfully paints our heaviest emotions in a light that's long overdue. Bittersweet is the perfect cure for toxic positivity and a sparkling ode to the beauty of the human condition. You must be so touched when somebody doesn't just pen out a review because they're doing you a favor, but they actually write what that book meant to them. Oh my gosh. It it really is the best feeling in the world, you know? And then like the letters that come in from people you've never met before and probably never will meet in person, but they took the time to sit down and write their story that your book helped them think of or helped them know. It, there's nothing like it. The best thing in the world. But it's not always easy, you know what I mean? Because you are exposing yourself, you're opening yourself up, you're, there's, there's no question in this world of trolls that they're going to paint you one way or the other. I mean, and but that's what I find so beautiful about it. I love what you wrote, that bittersweetness is not, as we tend to think, just a momentary feeling or event. It's also a quiet force, a way of being, a story tradition, as dramatically overlooked as it is brimming with human potential. It's an authentic and elevating response to the problem of being alive in a deeply flawed yet stubbornly beautiful world. Powerful words. What I took away from this, and I've, I'm my dad was bipolar. I find myself more happy or very happy. I'm just one of these people. I really have a sad day. When I do have a sad day, bothers me. I love listening to sad music stuff, but when I have a sad day, I think, what's wrong? You're kind of saying that's the opposite way to think, that you should be enjoying and embracing those days because they're as magical as anything else. I, I am saying that. I'm, one thing I'm not saying is, you know, if, if, if you happen to be blessed with an incredibly cheerful temperament, which it sounds like you are. And by the way, I've met people like that before who come from families with bipolar, where some of the members of the families don't have the illness. They just have like an incredibly upbeat mood. Um, so you're not the first person I've known like that. And so, yeah, if that's you, you know, God bless, that's wonderful. But it is to say that the melancholic side of life, and by melancholic, I decidedly do not mean depressed. I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm just saying like that, the sense of coziness and inspiration that you can feel on a rainy day, let's say, that there's there is a magic in that and there's a truth in that. Um, there's a willingness in that to engage with what humanity has always known. You know, there, there's a reason that all of our religions, what do they deal with? They deal with two things. They deal with love and they deal with loss and suffering. That's what religion is about because that is the fundamental experience of being human. And we need to engage with both sides. I took your bittersweet quiz. I am one that exists where light and dark meet, and I encourage people, I'll put the link into the show notes so people can do it. Most of the answers I gave eight plus, but I must imagine that that, that would have changed over the years. You know, if I experienced more, I've grown older, I have a different perspective. Do you think that's the case with most people or, or would I have been that way most of my life? And I'm not, I'm not asking you to judge me because you don't know me, but you know, do, you, do you feel that over time, things change in terms of how you appreciate happiness and sadness, light and dark. Absolutely. Um, many people do, I believe, become more bittersweet with time because they've just accumulated more life experiences. You know, if, if they've had 
I, I suppose the more common trajectory is that they hadn't necessarily understood life's complexities when they were younger. And then, you know, you accumulate different experiences and, and some of them have to do with loss and betrayals and things like that. And yeah, so people do become more bittersweet with time. But there's also, we found with our bittersweet quiz that there's a, a strong correlation between people who score high on the quiz, which measures how prone you are to these states of bittersweetness, um, a high correlation between that and the trait known as high sensitivity, which is a trait that was discovered by the psychologist Elaine Aaron. Um, and it describes about 20% of the population who are just sort of born into this world kind of more reactive to everything, you know, just feeling everything that much more intensely, the good and the bad. Um, and, and there's a real correlation there. You know, it's interesting because both my wife and I, I think are very, are highly sensitive, positive, lots of good things going on. But if something sets us off or, or it's, it is, it is quite interesting. So I, I do believe there's a correlation. One of the things I love about your book is your ability to personalize. You know, when you went to the, uh, the concert that you love Leonard Cohen. So there's all these tribute people were going to come to celebrate his life and his death and th that you were so upset with it until Damien Rice, by the way, was one of my favorite singers, changed your perspective. Personal stories, is that a Trojan horse or a vessel to really get people to accept who they are by painting other people in a similar circumstance? Yeah. I mean, as humans, that this is how we've taken in knowledge for thousands of years. We've done it through storytelling, through telling each other stories and telling each other about our lives. So I don't know of any other better way to transmit messages than that. And I also, though, like I really, really love ideas. And you can probably feel that in this book. You know, I spent... I spent so many years like reading what different thinkers and writers and philosophers had had to say about all these topics. And, and that's amazing too. I think the real um, wonderful challenge of doing nonfiction is figuring out how to weave together the stories and the ideas in a whole that feels seamless to the reader. That's the great art and challenge of it. You know, it's interesting with podcasts, we look at consumption. How long did people consume your podcast before turning it off? And I have to believe that in, in, in authors, it would be great to have that data because I would say to you that there's many books I've bought and I've skipped through, I started and stopped, but I actually read yours because it, it every chapter connected me. I felt there was something there. I love, for example, what the title of chapter one, what is sadness good for? And I just thought, what a wonderful way to invite you in. Oh, thank you so much. And I guess there is a way to do that now, right? With um, with Kindles. I guess with Kindles, you can with audiobooks. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and you're reminding me. I really should collect that data. I haven't looked at that. It, it's it's fascinating for me that, that when I started adding personal stories, people felt I was more vested personally and the consumption levels went up. And it made me more relate to the person I'm talking to because as I was reading your book, I was reading it thinking about how does it apply to me. Remember, there's light and there's dark. And when the dark times come, and they will come, don't be surprised, but ask yourself, what are you longing for? And follow your longing where it's telling you to go. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I'm joined by best-selling author, TED speaker, extraordinaire Susan King. 
So Susan, do we inherit the pain of our parents and ancestors? One of the things I wanted to look at in that chapter is um, not only do we inherit the pain of our parents and ancestors, but how? And what's really interesting is we kind of have always suspected that these legacies get passed down culturally and familially, you know, through, through the culture of our individual families, let's say. But we're also starting to suspect that it gets passed down epigenetically. If a being, and I say being because this applies to, to mice as well as humans, if a being experiences trauma in generation one, something changes in the genetic profile of that being. And when you get to generation five, six, seven, uh, the descendants are still carrying that altered genetic profile, which is absolutely fascinating. And I think is very helpful for those of us who, who feel that our families might have undergone some kind of generational trauma, you know, and if you, if you enter this world with what feels like um, what one researcher calls uh, thinner shock absorbers, you know, maybe like stresses stress you a little bit that much more, it can be really helpful to understand that you might have come into the world with a, a particular legacy. Not to say that it needs to define you, um, but understanding is is the greatest power that there is. You know, I look at all the work you've done, and again, you know, the, your best-selling novels, your teaching, the clinics, the quiet revolution that you started, so much of it really comes down to the power of just saying it's okay. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to be an introvert. It's okay to have sadness and sorrow. Why are we at a point in society where we have to be reminded that, where that should be maybe more obvious? Yeah. And I would just add to what you said. I would say not just okay, but that these these attributes are actually powerful. They're like deeply powerful. And I think all the time of, of myths and fairy tales, you know, where there's often the trope of like the the protagonist enters the story imagining that they're quite vulnerable and having no idea that there's a thing that exists that's that's called a lightsaber or 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 they mistake the lightsaber for a stick in the mud you know and then it has to be revealed to them that the thing that they they thought was the stick in the mud actually is has the great power and that's how i feel about these aspects of human nature that i've been talking about you know first quiet and now bittersweetness I, to me these these are attributes that kind of reverberate with a power. And why don't we see them, to your question? I mean, with bittersweetness, I think the problem is that we've become a culture that organizes people in terms of winners and losers. We're deeply afraid of being seen as one of the losers. And if that's what, if that's what you're afraid of, then you're naturally going to want to avoid any the expression of any emotion that has to do with loss or vulnerability or sorrow or longing or any of these states that are deeply human states, but you would want to disavow them so that you could be over there in the winner's camp. Do you feel there's an uphill battle for what you're trying to communicate to people because of social media? You tend not to want to reveal anything. You just want to be a shade of gray. What people also do with social media, they dress themselves up as winners a portrait in which everything is shiny, everything is beautiful, um, the family is completely harmonious, you know, everything is is uh, intact, no one wants to reveal the chink in the armor. But at the same time, there is always, there's always a great human thirst to tell the truth and know the truth. That's why we've had art and literature and music for all these years, because it's a way of 
of telling the truth in ways that are not as easy to do in everyday life. So I believe that new forms of social media are going to emerge that make it easier to do that because there's such a universal thirst for it. So what advice can you give to my listeners who might feel that they're not in the winner circle because they're introverted or uh, they're just not happy like everybody out in social media seems to be? What advice can you bring to them in terms of how to tap into that superpower and turn that stick into a lightsaber? You have to look at what your individual gifts are. For one person, it's going to be a lightsaber. For another person, it's going to be a wizard's hat. You know, for someone else, it's the ability to climb up the walls like a spider. You know, so the question is, what's your power? With the wake of, of publishing Bittersweet, now suddenly I'm getting tons of letters from people who were telling me that they had always felt this melancholic state that they had known to be connected to a kind of vibration in the universe. I'm sorry if that sounds woo-woo, um, but I'm thinking of one guy who wrote to me. He's a, he's a filmmaker, and he said all his life he would be listening to sad music and, and suddenly be overcome by what he could only call that holy feeling. And this is not a religious person, explicitly religious, but but this is what he felt. So all we can do is really turn in t- to who we deeply are and and the powers are there waiting for us. So what's next for Susan Kane? I mean, quiet, bittersweet. I mean, two runaway bestsellers, TED Talks, extraordinary public speaker and stuff. What, what dent are you going to next put in the universe to make people feel more as a human being? I mean, my next big project, I, I actually am, like so many people, uh, working on a podcast. Um, though I think I'm probably going to be doing it in a sort of different format from the usual. I'm, like, I'm really interested in exploring lots of, of these kinds of deep ideas, like what I've done in the book, but in shorter chunks. So, you know, different one. And each episode would be a different one. And there will probably be a book after that. But I'd really like to focus on audio for a while because I love it so much as a medium. So Susan, I always end my show with the three takeaways. And the first one, I can imagine you walking into your grandfather's place of living with books everywhere and knowledge everywhere and just seeing you light up and realize that there is so many things to discover. The second thing is just building on family. The the way you're you talk about your family of introverts, and we're always happy together, but in our own quiet space. And but the third thing is just is just how much you want to unlock an individual's superpower. I loved your metaphor of the stick that could become the lightsaber, but to someone else, it could be a wizard's hat. I think there's an awful lot of your spirit that's uh, and your grandfather's spirit and other spirits that are raging through your veins to just put the being back in human being. So for all of that and more, I just thank you for being part of Chatter That Matters. Oh, thank you so much. Um, really a delight to be with you. you. You conduct interviews very differently from the way most people do, and I really appreciate it. Joining me now is Neil McLaughlin. He's the group head, personal and commercial banking at RBC. Neil, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate the invitation. So Susan Cain writes this book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts. It becomes a runaway bestseller. Her TED Talk is one of the top 10 TED Talks of all time. So she struck an emotional chord. And, And the essence of it is that introverts don't always get a seat at the table. They're not always 
heard. They have to step back to this sort of the, the more talkative extrovert. Is that something you've noticed along your way that they might not get the attention they deserve? I've seen examples for sure. I mean, I think it's probably more prevalent sort of the, you know, the first time manager who is a really good producer and operator. They get to that management table. They're not comfortable speaking up. They haven't found their voice and maybe they get, they get, uh, overlook sometimes. I, I would say maybe to counterbalance it, you know, there's some folks that you can see in more senior tables as you get, you know, you take on larger roles where the sheer intellect and the results speak for themselves and maybe it's not um, as prevalent, but I can absolutely you know, understand the hypothesis. What advice would you give to those managers as they're growing into the leadership role to kind of remove their biases that it's not always the most talkative that have the words that matter, that sometimes it's the, the quiet person in the corner, the person that's a little bit more thoughtful, that they deserve to be listened to? You know, one of the things I've kind of gotten into a habit is to say, you know, listen for the words and the essence of the message, not the frequency or the veracity or the emphasis put on on the words. You just listen to the content. And the same thing can be can be said if you're looking for unconscious bias around folks with English, maybe their second language, not, you know, unlike myself, who can only really fluently speak one. You know, you have to pause and sort of consciously sort of push that out and, and listen to the idea and the essence of it. The second thing I would say is you have to purposely make space and give folks like that an opportunity to jump in the conversation. And what that means is sometimes steering the conversation at your table, making sure folks who tend to the extroverts, who tend to like to take up a lot of airtime, or maybe, uh, you know, coach to, to make room for others. And the, and the other side of that, though, is purposely inviting these introverts into the conversation, outwardly asking for their opinion. And uh, one of the things we do in our team is we say, you know, as a group, we value the debate. We think we get to better decisions when we hear different voices, pro and con. And ultimately, someone will make a decision. Um, but we're better for it. Part of that often is the leader should speak last and make sure there's not a bias put into the conversation up front. You're talking a lot about inviting people in. And I know that there's a lot of work RBC's done in terms of diversity. As an organization, it's we have a set of values and diversity and inclusion is one of our values. So it's that sort of mission critical to, to how we see ourselves and how we operate the organization. This is 2022. This is a sign of the times. This is where society is. And we try to think about ourselves as an organization who... We do believe we know what's right. We're not going to be shy about our support for diversity and inclusion. So it's something we talk about openly. I would consider myself a visual ally, uh, whether that's in a boardroom table or that's you know, how we mentor junior staff and how we make commitments ar around representation. But I, I think it's all of that. So when I look at your mission statement you're talking about, it's also about helping clients thrive and communities prosper. I just as we end this interview, I'm just curious about your career, which has been extraordinary at RBC, what are you most proud of? You know, as an organization, I think I was just really fortunate to join at a time where I was able to work with some really talented people and they gave me opportunity. But it was kind of the culture early on that that I'm quite proud of as the, that the organization represents, which is there's a belief in transparency that the right ideas and the right work and the right results will get rewarded. I think as an organization, we're quite proud that we go out of our way to develop people, to put formal development plans in place, uh, that we put rigor into things like succession and and talent development and i think it creates a you know good amount of sort of meritocracy and that uh, you know people do believe that the right folks given the right opportunities will have a chance to take advantage of them chatter that matters with tony chapman has been a presentation of rbc it's tony chapman let's chat soon